Good morning. Let's turn to 1 Peter, chapter 1. I'm going to reread just those first two verses once again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time when we can approach your word and learn from it. Pray that you would uh, help each of us to, to learn what you would have for us here in this passage. Thank you for this letter. Um, thank you for what you've taught me as I've studied this passage. Pray that you would help me to be clear. Pray for all of us, Father, that you would clear our minds of other distractions and help us focus for just a few minutes this morning on the text and what you'd have for us. I pray that Christ would be glorified and that we would understand more about him and about you and about your Holy Spirit this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So the last time we spoke in 1 Peter, we talked about uh, Peter himself. We talked about Peter's letter and why he wrote it. Uh, We talked about how he wrote this letter to encourage these scattered strangers Uh, So in in chapter 5, verse 12, Peter himself tells us exactly why he wrote the letter. He says, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. So Peter wrote so that we would stand in the true grace of God. It shouldn't surprise us then when we come to this very first portion of the letter Uh, that he explains what the true grace of God is. He starts with these fundamental principles at the very beginning. In a lot of ways, I like to think of 1 Peter as a handbook for pilgrims. If we're pilgrims in this world, this is a handbook for how we should live. It's one of the most practical epistles in the New Testament. There's a lot of instruction for Christian living. Uh, And he starts here, like any good handbook does, uh, with fundamental principles. You know, I almost brought it this morning. We have the U.S. Army Survival Manual at home, and it's filled with all kinds of sort of Boy Scout-type instructions, how to start fires and how to tie knots and field dress rabbits and different things. And, but, but, but the book doesn't start with how to field dress a rabbit. The book starts with some general basic principles. I think the very first chapter is called The Survival Mindset, and there's sort of these very basic things that it starts with. And, and that's the way Peter starts his manual here. He starts with... Um, these fundamental principles that he will unpack throughout the rest of the letter. We're not going to get to everything that we touch on today. We're not going to fully unpack uh, everything that we touch on. Uh, Peter will do that. He will, he will much more fully explain these concepts and these, these ideas in the book. Um, but we are going to take what we can from this, this introduction. We're going to take a close look at 1 Peter 1-2. Two, uh, And we're going to talk about how this verse gives us confidence to stand in the reality that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work in unison to save us. As we come to the text, remember, Peter wrote to these strangers. Some translations say exiles. Some translations say pilgrims. Uh, And these people were residing throughout Asia Minor. He wrote the letter to people 
who do not belong in the world in which they find themselves. But why do they not belong? And this brings us to the word elect. Depending on your translation, elect, that word, appears in either verse 1 or verse 2. Um, it doesn't really matter where it appears. Uh, in either case, that term is used to describe these strangers, these pilgrims, to whom Peter wrote the epistle. So these strangers are elect strangers. They're elect pilgrims, elect exiles. Uh, and that word elect just means chosen or picked out. That's just the, the basic dictionary definition of the word. Uh, the New American Standard actually translates the underlying Greek word as chosen. So in the, if you have a New American Standard, you'll see that the word chosen appears there at the end of verse 1. And so this term starts to help us understand something about these strangers and why they are strangers. Um, it helps us understand a little bit about the individuals who'd been chosen out from the inhabitants of the world. Then in verse 2, Peter writes these three phrases that help further explain what he means when he says elect. Okay, let's look at verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Each of these three phrases teaches us something about what Peter means when he refers to his audience as elect strangers. Each of these three phrases teaches us something about what it means for us to consider ourselves as elect strangers. But as we walk through these three phrases this morning, I want us to always keep in mind Peter's overriding purpose. He wants, us to, help, he wants to help us understand the true grace of God and to enable us to stand in it. So however we understand these phrases, I want us to think about how it relates to Peter's overall purpose in the letter. So the first phrase, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What does this phrase tell us about our election? Well, to understand that, we have to understand something about what the term foreknowledge means. It's elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And just as sort of a general aside, when you come to a word like foreknowledge, in your Bible reading, in your personal study, what do you do? Be careful about assuming that you know the meaning uh, of any particular word. You know, Scripture interprets Scripture. We have to understand these scriptural terms in a consistent way. If you look it up in a dictionary, the word foreknowledge simply means knowledge of something before it exists or happens. You can see the word has two parts, for, a prefix, it means before, and then the word knowledge. So there's these two parts, and the underlying Greek word is actually the word prognosis, <laughs> uh, which we all know what the word prognosis is. Um, it's, it's an attempt by a doctor to predict how your condition is going to develop. And that word also has two parts, pro, prognosis, pro is a Greek prefix that serves the same function as the word for. It means before. And gnosis, which means knowledge. Prognosis, knowledge before. Now, this is why this is important. Normally, I, I don't think it's necessary or even helpful to explain or understand um, 
not to understand, but to explain Greek in a, in a setting like this. I think often it just is confusing and it's unnecessary. Um, but, but I do think it's helpful here, and this is why. There are some connections that you might miss. Uh, just depending on the translation you read, there's some connections you might miss. And it's helpful to understand what the underlying Greek word is here so that we can see how uh, the, the New Testament uses this word. So, like I said, the, the, the word meaning knowledge is the word gnosis. And there's a verb form of that word. It's gnosko. Gnosis and gnosko. And I'm going to uh, show you some places where this appears in the New Testament. The goal being, the goal here is that we understand what the word for knowledge means scripturally. When we say we know something, we generally mean, I generally mean, that I know facts about something or about someone. If I say I know someone, it means I know facts about that person. I know that person's name. I know maybe things that person likes. I know maybe where that person works. So when we come to this word in the Bible, when we say, when we come to a word foreknowledge, and we, when we hear that God the Father foreknows something or someone, we might be tempted to assume that he simply knew facts about someone or facts about something before that thing happened at some point in the past. But the Bible frequently uses the word meaning to know, that word that I just said, gnosko, the Bible frequently uses that word to refer to an intimate, personal relationship between two persons rather than simply knowledge of facts about one person by another. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to Luke one thirty four. In Luke one thirty four, the angel Gabriel has just explained to the Virgin Mary that she's going to have a child. She's going to have the baby Jesus. And Mary says, this can't happen. Um, how is it going to happen? Um, because she is a virgin. And that's what the ESV translates the verse to say. The ESV says, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Uh, but you might notice a little, a little footnote there and a more literal translation. Um, I'm reading from the King James, and, and this is one of the more literal translations of this particular verse. says, then said Mary unto the angel, how shall this be? How will I have this baby? How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? The word translated know is that word. That's the word we're talking about, gnosko. And it certainly doesn't mean that Mary didn't know about a man. She certainly knew about many men. But she had not entered a, an intimate, physical relationship with a man. To know someone in this sense, therefore, refers to an intentional, loving relationship. It refers to the relationship between a man and his wife. Second example. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7 and verse, verses 21 to 23. This is a familiar passage. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus speaking. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name have done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. On the last day, there will be people pleading their case before the Lord. 
They'll say, didn't we do all of these things? Didn't we do all these wonderful works? And Jesus says, I never knew you. Does that mean he never knew about them? Is he surprised to see these people? Is he meeting for them for the first time? No, Jesus knew about these people. He's God, he knows all things. But these people have not been known in the only way that matters. God has not set his personal love on these people in the way that he has on his own people. So, so far we can see that to know, gnosko, can be used to, to convey the idea that there is an intimate personal relationship. There is a, a, an intent to set love upon something. It means more than simply knowing about something, or at least it can. Now I want to consider two other examples um, of, of uh, the way the New Testament uses the word foreknowledge. Not just knowledge now, but foreknowledge. This is the going back to uh, our first word, the word that's in our text, Prognosis, 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 okay? We're going to talk about that word. Now let's turn to Acts 2, 23. Sometimes when you're, when you're studying these, these words, when you're doing a word study like this, it can feel like you're jumping around a little bit, and indeed we are, but we're trying to get the overall idea of how the New Testament uses this word so that we can understand things consistently, so that we can have a consistent understanding that we can take to any passage and, 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 and be consistent with ourselves. So this is Peter, uh, the author of our epistle, preaching on the day of Pentecost. In, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he's speaking of Jesus. He says, Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. This is the exact same word that appears in our passage, this word foreknowledge. And what does this verse add to our understanding of the term foreknowledge? It says Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. This verse completely excludes the idea that foreknowledge is foresight. Instead, it's something closer to a foreplan. Uh, you might have heard the idea that foreknowledge means foresight. And, and this is why. It is offensive to most people to think that God made a choice of his own free grace in eternity past that determines salvation. That is offensive. It's offensive to me. It's offensive to most people. So to make sense of what the Bible says about election, some have argued that God has looked down the corridors of time, saw who would choose salvation of their own free choice, and then on the basis of that foresight, God elects those individuals. But that teaching that foreknowledge is simply foresight is incompatible with the Bible's teaching on this subject. This verse alone, Acts 2.23, demonstrates that. This verse teaches that the events associated with the delivering of the Lord Jesus Christ into the hands of wicked men to be crucified happened according to the deliberate, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God did not look down the corridors of time to passively predict what would come to pass. Instead, God actively chose to eternally set his love on the Son and ordain the events that would come to pass in association with his Son's death. God is not a celestial fortune teller. God is the sovereign of the universe who purposes all that comes to pass, even the events leading up to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. A second example of how the New Testament uses foreknowledge, and yet another example from, from Peter, is in 1 Peter 1. So let's get back to where we started in 1 Peter 1. 
and I'm going to read verses 18 through verse 20. For as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. So he's speaking to these people. You weren't redeemed um, um, with, with these corruptible things. What, what were we redeemed with? Verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Now, in my translation here, it says foreordained, but the underlying word is prognosis. Uh, The ESV translates this word as foreknown instead of foreordained. See, God did not look down the corridors of time to see or to learn that Jesus would be the lamb without blemish and without spot. To start with, God has never learned anything. See, God, before the foundation of the world, it says, freely determined to love his only begotten son and to send him into the world to be that spotless lamb. See, however you understand foreknowledge in verse 2 as it relates to the election of individuals to salvation, you have to understand it in a consistent way in verse 20. Peter didn't change his mind about the meaning of this technical term in the course of a single chapter. If God's foreknowledge in relation to election is his looking down the corridors of time to see our future faith, then God's foreknowledge of his son is the same thing. If foreknowledge simply means foresight, then you have no eternal decree. You have no plan before the world began to redeem mankind. You have no names written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. If you have a God who looks down the corridors of time to learn anything, you don't have an omniscient God. You have a fortune teller. But God's foreknowledge is not passive foresight. God's foreknowledge is the blueprint of our election. It's the blueprint of our salvation. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3.11, he says, it's the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, Peter writes this. He uses this term foreknowledge right at the beginning of his letter in an almost casual way. He, he uses a lot of big terms that mean very complex things in this, this verse. Foreknowledge, sanctification, sprinkling of the blood. These are big topics. He uses this term foreknowledge. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. How does this help us understand the true grace of God? How does this further Peter's purpose in this letter? Well, it helps us see that God's election of his people is his active choice in eternity past to set his love on his people. Okay? Now, how does this teaching about the Father's foreknowledge give Peter's audience, these elect strangers, confidence to stand? How does this give us confidence to stand in the true grace of God? It helps us see the Father's love for us as the first cause of our salvation. The Father's love for us in eternity past is what got things in motion. That's a way to think of it. It's a blueprint. If we come to understand the Father's foreknowledge as the eternal first cause of our salvation, if we come to understand that the Father drew the blueprint of our salvation before the world began, then we begin to understand how the Father's love for us is not something we have to earn. It's something that's always been. Uh, Gerhardus Voss was a professor of theology at Princeton in the late 19th century. He said this about God's eternal purposes toward his people. The reason God will never stop loving you 
is that he never began. The reason God will never stop loving you is that he never began. Perhaps we've been guilty of thinking of the Father as an angry God in the Old Testament. And Jesus had to come and appease this angry God so that the angry God would love us. But when we understand that it was the Father's love that caused the Son to come, the Father's plan from eternity past, we can no longer hold such thoughts. Remember, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. When we understand the eternal good pleasure of God toward his people, then we understand when the Apostle John in 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. When we understand that we have come to a saving knowledge of the Father because the Father in eternity past knew us, then we understand what the Apostle John means in 1 John four nineteen. We love him because... What? His first, he first loved us, the cause of our loving him. This gives us confidence to stand. In Paul's words, in, in Romans 8.31, he, he sums up the, the, the overwhelming nature of this teaching. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, you might be thinking, that's all well and good for the elect. You might accept this. You might say, this is, yeah, this, this sounds right, and that's great for the elect, but how do I know that I'm one of the elect? Because I have doubts about that. Because when I'm alone with myself, and my phone's not there, and people aren't distracting me, and the TV's not on, when I'm alone with my own thoughts, I'm not sure that I'm one of the elect. How can I know that I'm in that group? And Peter knows, God knows, that we struggle with things like that. What does he say in the verse? 1 Peter 1, 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. We're not only elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but through the sanctification of the Spirit. You see, God's foreknowledge is something that happened in eternity past. He wrote that blueprint before the world began. We're elect from eternity, but we're sanctified in time. The Holy Spirit brings sanctification to us in our lives, and that's something we can see. See, in the Old Testament... Uh, we see the word sanctification. Sanctify is sanctification and sanctify. These are other uh, technical terms. It's a technical term Peter uses here in this second phrase. What does it mean? Well, to sanctify something is to set it apart. Uh, You take it out from among common things and you set it apart for holy purposes. Uh, We see Moses do this with the the tabernacle, the tent of the tabernacle and the instruments of the tabernacle. Um, He set these things apart for holy use. Numbers talks about that. God took the Sabbath day. You've got seven days in a week. The sun rises and sets on each of these days. But God took the Sabbath day, and Genesis 2-3 says God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. He set it apart for holy purposes. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. He sets us apart to be holy. The Holy Spirit accomplishes this in, in two ways. Um, people can split hairs about how many ways, but, but there's two main ways. There's something called positional sanctification. And think about your changing position. We talk about being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. That's positional sanctification. When we think about that, think about the new birth, people being born again. You were in darkness. Now you're in light. You were dead. Now you're alive. 
That's positional sanctification. That's the opening of your eyes to the gospel. Uh, The second type of sanctification is progressive sanctification. When you think of progressive, you think of something progressing along, uh, along a timeline. And when you think of progressive sanctification as it relates to your own life, think of your growing in godliness. And both of these things are things we can observe. If we think about positional sanctification, how do we observe that? Um, the Apostle John in 1 John 5, 1 says this. He says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Did you know that believing the gospel is evidence that you have been born again? Whoever, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, I'm going to paraphrase. Uh, Paul says something to the effect that no man can say, Jesus is Lord, uh, but for the, the help of the Holy Spirit, okay? The, the belief that Jesus is the Christ, if you believe that, that is evidence that you have been born again, and that's something that you can look at. So if you get caught up on foreknowledge and wondering if you're in that elect, what does Peter say? Through sanctification of the Spirit, things you can observe in your own life to know that you're part of that group. Don't get caught up worrying about what God did um, you can see the evidence of what he is doing now. And others can see it too. You can see the Spirit's work in your life. You can feel the Spirit's work in your heart. Others can see the Spirit's work in you. And you can see the Spirit's work in other people. And you can encourage people with that. Um, If you see God working and, and transforming someone's life, someone maybe you knew for a long time and they've come to Christ and their life is different, that would be an encouraging thing to point out to that person. That would be something that would, that would definitely bolster their assurance of salvation. The Apostle Paul, when writing to the Thessalonians, said this. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, he said, We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because the Apostle Paul gave thanks for these Thessalonians. He says, Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation, through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Paul here, again, just like Peter, connects the sanctification of the Spirit with God from the beginning, choosing his people to salvation. Paul could thank God for these Thessalonians because he could observe their election. He could observe it how? By observing the Holy Spirit was sanctifying them through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Notice that specific example of sanctification Paul gives. Belief of the truth. Belief of the truth is evidence that you've been born again. It's evidence of the work of the Spirit. Peter starts out his second epistle with with instruction on this. Um, He lists several virtues that should appear in the Christian life. Uh, let's, Let's turn there together. It's 2 Peter, just a few pages over from where we are in the short epistle of 1 Peter. 2 Peter. I'm going to read... Verse 5, this is chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 10. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling 
an election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. Some translations say instead of sure, they say confirm your election. Peter's saying look to see if these virtues are in your life. Confirm your election. These are the ways in which we are told to assure ourselves of our salvation. We're to look for these things. We're to look for these evidences of the Holy Spirit. First John was written so that you might know. If you struggle with assurance of salvation, read the letter of First John. Read the beginning of, of Peter's second letter here. Think about these things. Think about these virtues. Do you see these things in your life? And don't get discouraged if there's a dry period. We all have dry periods. We all have periods of discouragement. We all have periods where we feel very distant from God. All of us do. But when you look at the long arc of your life, you will be able to see the Spirit's work. The Apostle Paul, Romans 8, again. I'm just going to read verse 16. He said, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us that we're the children of God. So knowing that we're elect through sanctification of the Spirit, like Peter says, this gives us confidence to stand in what way? Well, when we observe the work of the Spirit in our lives, we can be confident, like the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.3, be confident that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of salvation, under the day of Jesus Christ. If the Holy Spirit has begun that good work in you, he will complete it. And finally, we come to the, the last phrase. We've discussed how the Father's eternal love, his foreknowledge, gives us confidence to stand, knowing he's chosen us as his sons and daughters. We've talked about how the Spirit's sanctifying work gives us confidence because we can see the tangible results of that election. And now we come to this phrase, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You can see what I'm reading from in your outline, and it might help um, to follow along, because this, there's, there's an ambiguity in the text here, and I want to I address it. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting, actually. So the verse says that we are elect unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a, a fair rendering of the Greek. That's a pretty literal translation. As it relates to obedience, however, this verse could be one of two things. First, it could mean we're elect in order to obey God, in order to obey Jesus Christ. In other words, we are elect so that we might live. This is the purpose, unto. You are elect unto something. You are elect for something, for this reason. Why? Is it to live lives of obedience? Is this obedience here our obedience? That's option one. Option two, it could mean we are elect to receive the benefits of Christ's obedience. It says we're elect unto obedience... And then there's only one possessive here. It's of Jesus Christ. So there is an ambiguity. And both things are true. Both of these options are true. Ephesians 1.4, familiar verse. He hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. We've got election. Chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and without blame before him. Okay, so this is true. We are elect to be holy. What does is, what is the Apostle Paul say in Ephesians 2? Um, God has, has, has foreordained good works that we might walk in them. Okay? We are elect to live holy lives. And Peter, in this epistle, certainly will unpack what it means to live a holy life in a world in which we do not belong. So that's true. 
The second option is also true. It's also true we are elect to receive the benefits of Christ's obedience. We receive the benefits of his obedient life when we receive his righteousness instead of our own sin. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21. God, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus was made sin for us. He knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We receive Christ's righteousness. He receives our sin. The great transaction. The great exchange. Uh, We receive the benefits of his obedient life in that way. We receive the benefits of his obedient death because he died for us in our place. Romans 5.8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Both options are correct theologically and grammatically. Either one could be true. To determine which option Peter intended, we can look at the overall flow of the verse. I see three phrases according to their prepositional phrases for grammar nerds according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. According to, through, unto. In each of these phrases, Peter seems to be pointing to the work of each member of the Holy Trinity. The first phrase talks about the Father's foreknowledge. The second phrase talks about the Spirit's sanctification. To me, it makes sense that the third phrase would talk about the Son's work. To split the last phrase to talk about both our obedience and The son's work seems to interrupt the flow. I tend to think that this obedience here intended is Christ's obedience. I'm not dogmatic about that. It's either option is correct, like I said, but I think that's what Peter intended here. So I would say that the obedience here is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the verse says we are elect unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, of Christ, it means that we are elect to receive the benefits of these things. We are elect to receive the benefits of Christ's obedience. We are elect to receive the benefits of the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. And we need his obedience. We need his obedience. We've already talked about how his obedience consists of his life and his death. He lived this obedient life to obtain a righteousness we could not. Why did the Holy Spirit have to positionally sanctify us? Remember, when we talk about positional sanctification, we talk about the new birth. We were dead in our sins. We were born into this world. We came into this world dead. The Holy Spirit breathes new life into us. He regenerates us. He sanctifies us. He sets us apart. We need Christ's obedience because we were not obedient. Some of the passages in the New Testament, if you read through carefully and you read through slowly and you listen to Jesus' responses, some things might confuse you coming from the New Testament church. Uh, what does he say in Matthew 5.20, familiar verse? He says, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, for me growing up, I thought, well, that's because the Pharisees were so horrible. So you definitely had to be better than the bad guys in the New Testament in order to get into heaven. <laughs> but but that's, not, that's not accurate. The Pharisees and the scribes were very righteous. Um, they kept the law uh, very closely. They kept laws just to keep them from getting even close to breaking the law, man-made laws. They were very righteous in the flesh from a fleshly perspective. But Jesus is saying, no, you have to be perfect to enter heaven. You have to have a perfect righteousness. You have to have a righteousness, he was saying to these people, that you cannot have. Because these people that have dedicated their lives to trying to obtain this righteousness 
failed all of them. Everyone's failed. All of our mouths are shut, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3. We have nothing to say. We are disobedient. We need a righteousness from outside of ourselves. Uh, Martin Luther referred to it as an alien righteousness, a righteousness from outside of ourselves. We need that. And Jesus obtained it for us. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. We don't just need him dying on the cross. We do need that. But we also need the perfect life he lived to be imputed to us. We need his righteousness. We need uh, the robes of his, <clears throat> his righteousness, the wedding garment to, to allow us to enter uh, life, to enter the kingdom of heaven. We've already read 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who do no <laughs> sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's a beautiful verse. The whole gospel right there. Um, but our verse goes on in, in 1 Peter in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 2, it says, We are also elect unto the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. This verse refers to Christ's intercession. Jesus did a lot of things for us. He's our prophet, he's our priest, he's our king. In his role as our priest, what did he do? He intercedes for us. What does that mean? He goes between. To understand this phrase, the sprinkling of the blood, we've got to understand something about the necessity of shedding of blood. You know, Peter's importing a lot of knowledge here. He's assuming a lot of knowledge when he uses these words, foreknowledge, sanctification, sprinkling the blood. There's, there's a lot assumed here. Uh, and, and the author to the Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Uh, we already talked about just now how we broke God's law. We can only be reconciled, the Bible teaches us. The law teaches us we can only be reconciled to God, um, if another dies in our place, the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. So the Old Testament law prescribed yearly sacrifices to reconcile God and his people. These sacrifices took place on the Day of Atonement. So what would happen is once a year, the high priest in Israel would kill two animals, a goat and a bull, and he would take some of that blood, and he would enter into the holy place, the most sacred place in the tabernacle. He would enter the holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And, and as part of the Ark of the Covenant, there was something called the mercy seat. It was pure gold. And the priest would take some of that blood, and it says here in Leviticus 16, we don't have to turn there. I'll read it, Leviticus 16, 14. He shall take of the blood of the bullock. He did this with the goat too. It says, and shall sprinkle it, sprinkle it, Okay, we're thinking of the sprinkling of the blood. This is some of the imagery, some of the imagery that Peter's trying to capture. There's a lot. I'll take a step here. There are a lot of nuances to this verse. Uh, in my preparation, I was listening to some, some people who preached on this verse, and, and John MacArthur preached four sermons on this one verse. So, <laughs> I mean, there, there's a lot to unpack here. The, the sprinkling of the blood could refer to a lot of different things. There's a lot of sprinkling of blood in the Old Testament, but it certainly refers to this sprinkling. Leviticus 16, 14. And he, the high priest, shall take of the blood of the bullock and shall sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. In this way, the high priest was interceding for the people. The mercy seat was, was the presence of God. That's where God dwelt in the tabernacle. And the, the, the high priest was going in there and he was making atonement uh, for the people. That's what the, the, the passage calls it. Uh, in verse 30 of Leviticus 16, says, On that day shall the priest make an atonement for you. If you think about the word atonement, where does that come from? At one meant to make at one, to make two things that are separate, one, atonement. Okay? The, the priest, the high priest would go in and atone 
for the people. It was an intercession. But Hebrews 10.4 tells us this. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. So it forestalled it a year until the next day of atonement, but it didn't permanently atone. That's why the high priest had to enter year after year after year to offer the sacrifices again and again and again. So much blood was spilt in the Old Testament, constantly reminding people of the great cost of their sin. Endless death in this system. The law is a system that that there is no end to the shedding of blood. But Hebrews, again, tells us the solution to the problem. This is Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 11 through 14. Feel free to turn there if you'd like. I think it's worth looking at together. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. I'll be reading it. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. What does this mean? Christ enters the heavenly tabernacle. Not, not the earthly tabernacle, but the earthly tabernacle was a copy. It was, a, it was made based on a pattern that God gave Moses. But the pattern represented the heavenly temple. Christ entered the heavenly tabernacle, the perfect tabernacle. Says verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The three phrases, this is an aside, the three phrases we're talking about in 1 Peter 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, we see the three members of the Holy Trinity working together to accomplish our, our salvation. Here in verse 9, we see that the three members of the Holy Trinity were involved in Christ's offering himself. It says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So our high priest didn't enter the holy place with blood of goats and bulls. He entered the holy place with his own blood. He offered himself once for all time. He obtained eternal redemption. It says in verse 13, I don't know if you caught it, it says, the, it says for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling, there's our word sprinkling, the unclean, sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ? We are elect to receive that sprinkling, the perfect sprinkling, the once-for-all sprinkling. So how does this help us stand? How does it give us confidence to stand? What to, how does it further Peter's goal in writing us this letter? Well, the author to the Hebrews refers to Jesus' intercession as an anchor of the soul. I love nautical metaphors. Megan thinks it's funny. I'm, I love reading nautical books, and, and I, I love the nautical aesthetic, and she's like, we live in the middle of Ohio. <laughs> we can't, we can't, we're not, we're not uh, ancient mariners, but, <laughs> uh, but an anchor of the soul. I love that. I love that picture. I'll bet you Peter loved that picture too. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Um, maybe it was Peter, who knows, but, but I'll bet you Peter would love that metaphor too. An anchor of the soul, a fisherman, a guy who knows he was, you know, an ancient mariner. <laughs> um, he, this teaching that Christ intercedes for us is an anchor of the soul. Uh, I want us to turn to Romans 8. 
We've been referencing Romans 8 several times. Romans 8 verse 34 says this. And just turn there. We're going to read there more in a second. I'm going to read this verse. It says, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Christ makes intercession for us. Those for whom Christ intercedes have no need to fear any condemnation. Who is he that condemneth? Who can condemn us? Christ died, offered his own blood, and intercedes on our behalf. If Christ is interceding for you, no one can condemn you. So when your mind is polluted with thoughts that cause you to doubt your salvation, what should you do? Turn to your sanctification and look to see how the Holy Spirit is working in your life. Remember what Christ did for you. Remember that he's interceding for you. The accuser of the brethren, it says in Revelation, is cast down. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. We've touched on big topics. We have certainly not exhausted them, but we don't need to. Uh, Peter develops these things further in the letter, and Lord willing, we'll talk more about it at some point in the future. God the Father, before the world began, set his love on his elect people. Because of that, we can know that his love will never end. Even as we live in a world that sees us as strangers, we can have confidence that our Father sees us as sons and daughters. God, the Holy Spirit, sanctifies us. He opened our eyes to the gospel. If it weren't for his work, we could never believe that Jesus is the Christ. We can look at our lives, we can see his work, and we can rest assured that we are numbered among God's elect. I, I highlighted it as we were reading, in, in, as we were singing the very first song, Oh, how sweet to walk in this pilgrim way, leaning on the everlasting arms. We rest in this knowledge. We rest. God the Son died and intercedes on our behalf. The Lord Jesus Christ lived the life that we never could, he obtained the righteousness we so desperately need. And when he died in our place on the cross, he took our sin on him. He gave us the righteousness he obtained for us. And he lives forever to intercede for us. And no one can condemn us. The three members of the Holy Trinity working in perfect unison to bring about the salvation of God's elect. The Father foreknows his people. The Spirit sanctifies his people. The Son died and intercedes for his people. The most important thing in life is to know the Lord. Think about this carefully in your own life. Just do you know the Lord? Can you see the Spirit's work in your life? Does the Lord know you? Do you struggle with assurance? Do you see these things as being an anchor of your soul? Go to the Word, read the Word.